people who I wanted to be around with and who I still want to be around with always believe the best about me, even when I wasn't, I knew I wasn't consciously doing my best. And, beca and because they believe the best about me, that gave me the energy and strength and grace that I needed to get to the next level, to find healing, to be the person that I knew God had called me to be. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, had a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me. BetterHelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody. Don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge, start your wellness, get help, get support you need. Hello, hello, hello. This is hope to recharge. We are coming to you from Florida now. We had to adjust a lot of things to our schedule and our recordings and the recording that I'm doing now, I rescheduled a bunch of times. I think we spoke for the first time about a year ago. Uh, be, while you were writing your book. And we're finally, we can um, jump on a call now. And I always say that everything is meant to be at the right time. Hmm. And our conversation now that we're going to have during the crisis of COVID can be so much more helpful than I would think a year ago. So everything happens in the right time. And um, I'm so grateful to have June Park here. Thank you for joining me here today. Matana, thank you so much for having me. I have been listening, by the way, to your podcast. Mm. I love it. Absolutely love it. Love your voice. Love everything that you have to offer. Also, you mentioned that I am from Florida and I just want to tell your listeners, I am so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm in Florida now. I'm originally, I'm from New York. Mm. I'm actually Israeli, moved to New York, but we came to Florida right before the schools shut down in New York. And we're going to be here until we don't know when, <laughs> until yeah. life changes a little bit 
for the positive back in New York. So yeah, so June, nice to meet you face to face. I really appreciate it. June has an interesting story to tell us and is and he just finished writing his book that will be released in the beginning of May. And by the way, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, by the way. So your book is so appropriate for for the month. And June is a pastor and went through so much seeing people through pain, guiding through people through pain, holding people face for pain. And I would say joining them on their journey during pain. And I just asked June before we started, I said, are you a therapist? Because it takes a lot to hold space for other people's pain. And he said, no. And I said, wow, so you really have to have a very big heart and a lot of patience. So June, give me a little bit of a background of what made you go into what you're doing now and and what was what was your upbringing like and why did you choose this path I grew up actually an atheist and it wasn't until late in life that I found faith and I started off as a pastor for almost 7 years uh but at some point along the way I found church ministry extremely diff- difficult kind of political and I found it awkward and strange to constantly be preaching information. I know that that's for some people and we need people to be giving messages, but I found that difficult and then I heard about the role of chaplaincy, which I am now a chaplain. A chaplain is different than a minister that rather than preaching information or a presence or what we might call non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. So Uh, I literally sit down with people in grief, in crisis, at the ground zero of their trauma and their wound, and they tell their stories. And in some way, I I do my best to journey with them. Uh, In chaplaincy, we call that getting in their river. There's a much more impolite word, the river of dot, dot, dot. Mm. (laughs) But we get in that person's river and validate their pain, their experience, and allow them to unfold their story that they might find not complete closure, but some kind of catharsis. So to answer your question, I think the way that I came about into this kind of role, I grew up with so much uh, trauma and uh, so many hard things happening. I'm a nine out of 10 on the A score. Mm. Uh, So for your listeners, the A score, you know, adverse childhood experiences, the higher you score on that, that means more trauma you've had, the more likely you are to experience uh, debilitating physical and mental symptoms. Um, I'm a nine out of 10 on that, which is quite high. Uh, mm. That's high to get. So growing up, I almost became what I am now, I think because I wanted to be the voice that I never had. I wanted to be the voice that I always needed. So I didn't have a lot of that growing up, not that I never had it, but I needed connection. I needed someone to listen. I needed empathy and didn't always get that. Uh, and whether that's because of my own culture, upbringing or there weren't the right people at the right time. I didn't have that. And when I did, I knew that's what I wanted to be. So why not a therapist? Uh, I absolutely love uh, the mental health field therapy. I actually have a bachelor's in psychology. And so um, a chaplain sort of navigates that strange space between uh, therapy and counseling and religion and faith. There's sort of this strange middle space. And so where I work currently at a homeless shelter, we have case management, we have uh, therapists on site, we have people who advise for employment and housing and things like that. What's so interesting is that when I see what therapists and counselors do, they they kind of sit with those homeless individuals or low income uh, families and individuals, and they make a plan, they talk about their past, their history, their trauma, 
and there are a lot of techniques that therapists have and things like that. But every once in a while, when a therapist hits something that's spiritual or philosophical or some sort of dilemma that's moral and ethical, they'll they'll sort of turn to me and say, hey, can you help with this? Wow. So there's actually a lot of spaces where I, I absolutely believe therapy um, can reach those spaces. But to partner with someone who understands sort of religious, philosophical, faith type of worldview, that's a whole holistic package for a person. Mm -hmm. The person is many, many different levels. There's a therapeutic level. There's kind of a functional level. How can I get housing? How can I improve my skills to get work? But also the spiritual, philosophical dimension to each person. And I find myself in that awkward, strange space between therapy and between uh, uh, religion. So do you have to believe in God in order to be in your shoes? Uh, for me, uh, for a chaplain, absolutely not. Uh, I am an interfaith chaplain. We do ecumenical work, which means uh, fellow chaplains. There are Buddhists, Muslims, Hindu. Uh, there are even atheist and agnostic chaplains. Mm -hmm. So when I talk with an individual, when I have a one-on-one -on -one with them, again, the minister's goal is to give information. Mine is actually to enter in and whatever that person believes, we use those pre-existing tools to help them make sense of their pain or their story. And so whatever their beliefs might be, sometimes they might be harmful. So we have to reconstruct that or kind of talk about that, explore. But my goal isn't to, to preach at someone, to make them change their mind. Rather, it's you have the tools already. How can I as a chaplain journey with you to figure out with the tools and the power you have to get the healing that you need? Did you get the healing that you needed before you became a chaplain? So super awesome question. One of the things about the chaplain program is uh, it is difficult to counsel someone's grief unless you have explored your own grief, mm -hmm. right? So the chaplain program is super intense in that as we were doing visitations, we call those clinicals with the patients. Um, we did reflections every single week. Uh, we did verbatims, which are kind of like book reports on patient encounters mm -hmm. that deeply resonated with us. We were constantly doing internal work yeah. as we were doing external work. And so I would say in some ways, the work itself healed me. Mm -hmm. In a lot of other ways, there was a lot of work that I needed to do. And really being a chaplain, entering that program, I mean, this is so cliche, but it was life-changing. It really was. It was so transformative. I found so much healing in work. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we no. can find healing. It's phenomenal. In it's yeah, phenomenal. We, we can find healing as we try to uh, help in the healing of other people, right? Absolutely. So, 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 you know, we can, we can pour out even just what we have. Uh, for the sake of other people. And so I'm still in that process of finding that healing. Uh, I, I would say that compared to when I started, lots of recovery and progress, I hope. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's been a fantastic journey. I would do it all over again if I could. Wow. What, what would you say was the main cause of your trauma in your upbringing that you felt like you didn't have a voice? Was it just the cultural thing that you keep quiet and you don't share your feelings? Or was it real trauma of abuse? Yeah. I shouldn't say real because tr any trauma is trauma, but I'm saying like what the world looks at, at as sure. trauma. Every, That's everyone can have simple traumas. And, and the, the not, the ability to not speak your voice is a trauma in itself. But was there something significant that you would say was the main force in what you wanted a voice for? Yeah, I hear your heart on that. And I, 
you know, I think there was significant trauma that was from family of origin. There was uh, lots of physical abuse growing up. Um, you know, in the ACE score, they asked questions like, did your parents ever physically hit you or hit each other? Uh, were they ever in jail? Did they ever use hard drugs? Did they ever um, not believe in you? So things like that, I can just check all the way down the list almost. Oh. And I, I don't want to throw my parents under the bus because I know that, as we say, they tried the best they could with how they knew how, right? Um, but certainly there was a lot of trauma in family of origin. You know, I haven't shared this a lot publicly, but uh, there's also, you know, not from my family, but there's history of sexual abuse that I endured. Growing up in, you know, the 90s, school era, there was a lot of racism that I suffered as well. Mm -hmm. So there's that sort of quote unquote external trauma, you could say, but then there's also the cultural layer that you were alluding to earlier, where it's true that in Eastern and Asian cultures, I'm generalizing, it's not always true, but perhaps more true that we don't have quite a voice because there's a deference and respect to elders. We don't talk about our feelings. We don't express what's really going on. We need to stay silent and quiet and submit to our elders and to those who have higher authority. That comes ingrained deeply in our culture. So to talk about feelings, to talk about what I want, my dreams, my hopes, that, that is very much uh, suppressed and restrained. And so mm -hmm. I think that also had a lot to do with not having a voice and being silent. And you, you, we know all about the model minority and you know being passive. And a lot of Asian Americans are perceived that way. And I think, unfortunately, uh, people put that on Asians and Asian Americans, but also inside the Asian culture that happens to be part of our uh, cultural worldview. That's fascinating to me. That's absolutely fascinating um, and heartbreaking at the same time to, to see your beautiful face and your calm energy and to think that you checked off all of those and you're sitting here with such a calm energy to just serve others is is both inspiring and heartwarming and giving me hope that people that do suffer, they will heal through giving back and not become the victim. And one of the biggest things that I try, try, try so hard to speak about and, and to attract to our community in this podcast is the people should not feel like a victim. And when we decide that we want to heal, we are leaving the victim mindset into taking charge, to changing. But we, it's really hard to heal and to find hope in victim mode. Yeah, you, you know, something weird and maybe this, to me, this was funny, I guess, at, at, when I first discovered it, Matana, was when I started talking about my childhood and stuff in this chaplain program because we have to dig deep, right? I started naming the things that happened to me. And as I was naming them, I didn't know that the things that happened to me were trauma. Mm. I, in many ways, I didn't know I was a victim, mm. that, I, that I was a sufferer. Mm -hmm. I just thought this is the way everybody grows up. This mm -hmm. is what gives me my badge of credibility. This mm -hmm. is my story. This is my pain. And it's what everybody has to go through to live. Mm -hmm. But as I started naming these things, one of the supervisors stopped me and said, June, you know, what happened to you was not okay. Right. And I, I started laughing and I said, what do you, what do you mean? Like, this is just what everybody. And she, she said, no, 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 no. What happened to you is not okay. And she kept saying that. <laughs> and the tears just started streaming down my face. Wow. While I was kind of trying to laugh it off. It was a strange thing. This, this paradoxical contradictory, these, these are co conflicted emotions. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought, no, no, it was fine. It was fine. And I'm crying. Wow. And I had to really take a look at myself and realize, yeah, the things that happened to me were not okay. So I did go through a phase where in the beginning, I was like, gosh, I was a victim. I was a victim of this pain. But then, as you said, Matana, so eloquently, there's a time when we go from victim to now, how can I build a skill set of resilience mm -hmm. and make sense of this and move forward in a way where I can draw strength and build something better out of the pain that happened? Becoming the hero. It's always tough, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Becoming the hero and, and leaving, it's leaving the comfort zone that pities ourselves because it's really, it, there's something comforting in giving validation to what was not okay. But after a while, it doesn't serve us to move forward. So there's a time and place for everything. And when we own that and we say, okay, now it's time to move forward and leave that stage of victim and move into healing is there's there's just a transformation in that moment when we're accepting it and i think when you were crying and laughing together you were trying to accept it but still own it and it was just so fast for you it was hard to process yeah definitely i mean i i you know even nowadays when i talk with people you ever talk with someone matana and they tell you about very casually about oh my parents used to hit me you know that was just discipline you know mm -hmm. they don't say that's domestic abuse they just mm -hmm. say it's just so there are times when i will relate with someone and say that and we'll laugh about it like, yeah you know how these you know parents are these asian parents or this minority or that minority. Mm -hmm. it's just the way we grew up but then I, nowadays i have to pause after you know we laugh about it and say but yeah you know what happened was that probably affected you in some deep way mm -hmm. you know and they'll look at me like hey why are you being a downer why are you crashing right. party you know right. we were having fun and i'm like yeah but you know that's something to think about and explore like what happened to you that probably is sitting somewhere in your chest and mm -hmm. has to be has to be contended with do you have siblings i do so i have a younger brother he is a martial arts instructor uh, love my little brother. It's weird calling him my little brother because he's taller than me, better looking than me, <laughs> makes more money than me. Um, no, yeah, I, we talk almost every single day. Wow. Um, I have an older uh, stepbrother. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's from my dad's second marriage. He's technically not my stepbrother now, but we still call each other brothers and a mm -hmm. younger stepsister. Mm -hmm. And then um, this is something that I've never shared publicly, but I have a, I found out just some years ago, I have a half brother in Korea. Mm. So, yeah, so my family is very fragmented and strange. Wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Where did you grow up? In Florida? I did. I was born and raised in Flori Florida. So I am a Korean Floridian. <laughs> Where in Florida? Uh, I was born in Largo, so by the water. Mm. Yeah, and I was, quote unquote, uh, an accident. My parents did not plan on having me. Did they tell you that? You know, they told me early on. Oh. So they didn't have the presence of mind oh. that, that that would be maybe harmful information. Oh my God. I was probably, you know, younger than 10 years old when I found out. Mm. And so, you know, I talk about this in the book, Matanas, but, and I'm sorry to shamelessly plug that. But one thing I talk about is how I found out early on that I was quote unquote an accident. Mm -hmm. um, and that informed a lot of my early worldview. I believed I was some kind of cosmic mistake. And so whenever I did something bad, 
I was like interrupting the universe. Like I should not be putting that sort of darkness and evil into the world. Like I'm messing up. But every time I did good, I was earning my stay. I was validating my existence. So I was scared all the time. To be perfect. Yes. And so one of the reasons why my faith is so helpful to me is because I learned, no, that's, you were not an accident. You are loved. You're made in the image of God, that whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. that, that really yes. find find purpose and resilience. So, but yeah, hearing that from an early age, mm -hmm. knowing that I was an accident, the one before me, my parents um, decided to abort. <laughs> I mean, that was a, a very intense fact to know growing wow. up and still working through that. Yeah. Wow. Are you in touch with your parents? Are they alive? Yes, they are. So my mom is in town. Uh, oh, my dad is, is uh, newly married. I, well, actually, no, I think they've been married eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. Time is long. Uh, so that's his third marriage. Very, very happy. And so they're they're both still very, very much uh, in town. And you know, I have to say, reconciliation. There have been times when I haven't talked with them uh, sometimes for years. So reconciliation has been getting better, but I have to say, it's still sometimes tough. Absolutely, my husband has a brother, one brother and one half brother. Um, his mother left them. I said this a few times on my podcast. His mother left him when he was nine, ran away from home and took only the baby. But the baby wasn't, was from a different man. Um, but they found out only after years. We were telling the story in details to my children this past Saturday and they were, they knew that that his mom left him when he was nine because we don't have anything to do with her. She ran away and she calls once a year on his birthday, but she doesn't know my kid's name. She doesn't know anything about our lives. She wasn't at a wedding. And, and my husband speaks about acceptance and not judging. And I never understood. I came from a very loving family and everything was like the, the classic perfect family. And I didn't understand when I first married him, like, why are you even in touch with your mother that calls once a year? She's not a mother. That's not a mother. But he keeps on, he kept on saying, I don't know what led her to leave. And I'm not in her place to judge her. I just know that she's my mother, no matter what, she's my mother. But, and he's, he struggles with the letting go of the pain of losing the mother and acceptance of the fact that she is his mother that he'd never had. So the forgiveness part, he said that when he was young, he decided that he had to forgive that she left just for himself to live with himself and not hate himself to say, oh, she left me because I was bad. We had such a long conversation with our kids about that. And Parents are parents, no matter what they do to us. And sometimes we have to disconnect a little bit in order to heal. But in a way, we don't really know what they went through to show up the way they did. They showed up in, in our lives. Yeah. You know, I think your, your husband has so much grace and empathy and compassion. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. I, you know, I, I, I definitely believe that, that Forgiveness is healing for everybody involved, mm -hmm. especially ourselves, right? And I also hold space for, I've seen in the hospital so many times, have heard so many times stories of abuse, ongoing abuse, and things where reconciliation, there's a desire there. Mm -hmm. But gosh, I sometimes think because of the level of violence and danger, mm. I mean, I think these are things that are becoming more known and better talked about now these days mm -hmm. about you know uh having boundaries and right. how uh, we can never enable abuse and things like that and when it comes to family 
what I've often seen is, gosh, when it comes to family, I think there are people, they're in your family, but they're not always with your family. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. They're, it's they're so in true. Your, yeah, they're in your family, but they're not for your family. Like they're your and, DNA, but yeah. But that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm all about forgiveness, reconciliation. I want to be. And at the same time, I've heard so many hard stories where I'm like, yeah, maybe it's safer and better, like you said, to disconnect, uh, whether that's a season or for a much, much longer time. So I, I really struggle with the idea of because they're, it's a family thing or because they're family, uh, that they get a pass. And I know that's not what you're saying at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's still, still something I'm very, very much contending with. Um, and it's not easy. So yeah, I, there's a whole, again, I, I'm plugging the book. There's a whole chapter on, on family dynamics uh, in the book. And I do a, almost like a case study of one family. And I think I say the same thing in there about uh, there are people in your family and not necessarily for your family. And everybody has to kind of decide in the end. And I think there, there is a phase for most people where in many areas we end up outgrowing our parents. And that's that comes with its own awkward, strange growth pains. Wow. What does that mean? Give me a little bit more on that because I can never imagine outgrowing my parents. I'm, I'm careful to phrase this in that there are going to be areas where we, we certainly don't. Uh, but there are areas where we do outgrow our parents in many ways. And so, for example, my parents, you know, they both came to America with literally nothing. And that's an experience I will never be able to have and, and cannot comprehend doing. So in that way, they certainly have more strength than me and growth than me in that. My dad survived uh, the war. He survived the Korean War when he was a little boy, and he enlisted for the Vietnam War uh, when he was older. So he is a veteran. He was a POW. He survived uh, the Viet Cong prison. I mean, oh. his life is just, I mean, he wow. has a, yeah, he has a, his own memoir in Korea, just the things, the horrific things he endured and survived. Wow. So in that sense, I want to be careful in that I, I, I don't have those experiences. So I don't have the strength and resilience from those things. But then there are other things like, let, let's say technical things, whether that's technology or social media or kind of stuff in the new world in our generation that they have to learn that we need to help them with. But also the things that we now have the resources for, like mental health, mm-hmm. therapy, ways that we can connect with community. I think my parents and maybe the some older generation uh, either don't want or feel like they don't need growth in and therefore don't grow in. Mm. So, so my parents certainly... When it, when it comes to therapy, they would just kind of wave their hand at that. Like, I'm not going to talk with a person in a room about my feelings and cry for an hour and pay them money for that. You know, right. yeah, that, that would be so almost obscene to them mm-hmm. to, to even attempt. So in that sense, I want to be fair in that maybe they're not growing in those areas because those resources don't make sense to them. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't grow up in a culture where those were seen as positives. Mm-hmm. They grew up in a culture where that was seen as detriment and laughable. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, because I'm lucky and privileged and blessed, I get, I I have growth in certain areas that they don't, but I do wish that for them. I absolutely do. And I I have gently suggested to them, maybe therapy and (laughs) they probably will never go for it. Right. It's Um, just a different generation. Yeah. 
It, it absolutely is. So, you know, I'll work it out myself and I, you know, do you know what I've been through and I, I can go through any of that, you know, more. <laughs> so. Right. And it's amazing that, that you suggest it, like you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try, even though it's probably going to be a rejection and a no and a laugh and, and like, uh, um, uh, uh like uh, looking down, like, really, you would think I'm going to go to therapy, but you're trying, you're, you're suggesting and you're holding on to maybe. Who knows? There's never, we never know what is a life-changing experience that can lead people to do the unthinkable for them. Yeah. And to be fair, you know what? I, I, I know that with my mom, I did gently suggest, but there have also been times where I, it wasn't a gentle <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I want to be fair that, yeah, telling our parents, like giving them feedback, gosh, right. that's a weird, awkward position to be in. Right. Um, and sometimes that comes out of anger or like passive aggressive hostility. Right. But we do want, you know, there there comes some point where we want our parents to get the help that they didn't get to have. Or we want them to get the help so they can understand us better. Wow. That's absolutely right. I know that uh, I was talking to a friend of mine today and I said that one of my children, I really try to understand him better. And, and sometimes it's so sad to me that I don't understand him. And I wish I was like, there was a USB key. I always say, I wish there was a USB key that can plug me into his brain that I could just get it and understand it. And, and he might be thinking, I wish my mommy tried a little bit harder. I wish she understood me. I should, but she, and, and it's really a challenge, especially when it comes to culture. Talk about culture. Like if your parents are originally from Korea. That's right. Yep. They're both from South Korea <laughs> and they came to America and, when they were younger, they got married here, they met here. Yeah. So they met in New York. My dad came after he was uh, liberated from the Viet Cong prison camp. That's a crazy sentence, by the way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I want to interview him. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a great interview. Wow. Uh, it really, it really would. Uh, he, he, shortly after they gave him kind of a check, he spent it all the night before he went, he came to America I think he came to America with literally 50 bucks in his wallet. Luckily, he had friends uh, that wow. helped him out. But yeah, they both met in uh, in New York. So my, I would say my mom is more Americanized, uh, but my dad is very much uh, traditional and old school. So, but yeah, you know, that, that, that whole cultural thing, there are sometimes, even now, my parents will say things that would offend in our, in our age, that offend me, mm-hmm. that I just find like, we don't say that anymore, or we can't you know, there, that was never okay. Mm. <laughs> and now we're discovering that it's not. Mm. And I have to often give them a pass. Not right. that the, what they're saying is okay, but almost like they come from such a completely different world that how can I even set up the furniture for them to be able to walk into that room to say that th- this is offensive? <laughs> I, I totally agree. And just like I always say, it goes both ways. Just like we want them to respect us, we have to respect who they are. You know, it, it does go both way. We do have to put up boundaries for people that interfere with our way of being for our, our best and whatever boundaries that could be not having conversations that will be upsetting or time frames or distance that could be so, but we have to also respect that they are them and agree to disagree and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of us, I'm, I'm talking about myself, I, I have been in danger of idolizing uh, my dad, especially mm. putting him on a pedestal and maybe overly respecting him or submitting to him in a way where everything he did was perfect. 
Mm-hmm. So there's that. But then there's the other end where I treat my parents like, like glass, you know, where, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, they went through so much. So everything they do is fine. <laughs> mm. you know? There's, there's the gold, there's the, there's the glass. And then there's also being crazy angry at my yeah. parents, right? The, there's unforgiveness. Right. Uh, but what I, what I've learned is not to treat them like, like gold or glass or to look at them with a type of anger, but just to see that they're made of, they're made of human guts like anybody else. Right. You know, they're just like people. Matana, have you ever had that weird moment where this happened to me when I was a kid? I saw one time at a movie theater, I must have been like 13 years old. I saw my teacher at the movie theater <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, he, he goes to the movies like, <laughs> like everybody else. Right. Like right. I thought he lived in a cave, you know, like uh, <laughs> and just right. came to the school to torture us. And, right. you know, or I saw, I would see my like pastor at, you know, right. a game or something. And right. I, just, I thought he just lived at church and then he comes out, they let him out to preach on Sunday. And, yeah. you know, but you have that weird moment where you're like, oh my gosh, they have a whole life. Yes. You know? Yeah. They're just like us. Hopes, dreams, insecurities, anxieties, all of it. Yeah. They're just like us. I think now during the COVID 19, everybody's experiencing that everybody's human. You mean they have anxiety, even though they're a therapist and a psychologist that deals with anxiety. You mean they have worries and stresses just like us? Like really? Um, Doctors are afraid of getting infected. Can't they heal everyone? Like, so we're realizing now during this time that everybody's human and we're all um, fearing the same fears no matter yeah. where we are. Yeah, you may have seen online already, but there are people having dialogue about healthcare workers being called heroes. Mm-hmm. How appropriate is that? Because on one hand, we do see them as heroes and the work they're doing is heroic. But at some point, if you elevate them too much, it doesn't give them room to breathe or to hurt or to grieve. Agree. Right? Yeah, so I think that languaging, that messaging is so important to kind of be more thoughtful about I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of these healthcare workers set out to be heroes or to sacrifice their own lives. Or they uh, didn't prepare themselves enough to be able mm-hmm. to survive. What they are doing is is heroic and mm-hmm. every day it is, but we have to remember that they they need to cry too, they need to grieve too, they need to process, they need to sleep, they need to eat. Like they they need time, they need to be mad, they need to cry. Like they need this as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. You mentioned uh, in the first minute, I think, that we started speaking, and it's something that I always have a conversation about with friends and families. And you said, my parents did the best they could. Do you really believe that most people do the best they can? Yeah, you know, um, Brene Brown talks about this in one of her books, and I think one of her talks where she asks, she asked her husband a question, do you really believe, she asked a bunch of people, yeah. do you really believe people do the best that they can? And I think I agree with the conclusion that her husband came to, which is, I have to believe that people are doing the best they can. Because even if they're not, if I'm cynical and pessimistic, and I view that person through a negative filter, that will always in some way hold them down from from their best. So even if they're not trying their best, I want to believe this person with the knowledge that they have the resources that they have in their up with their upbringing, their background, their story in the 10 foot space around them, that they are doing the absolute best that they can given everything that they're going through and have gone through. Now I know logistically, factually that they may, that may not always be true. Uh, Sometimes people flake out. 
sometimes people can commit heinous acts. Sometimes people um, come up short. But for me, I tend to have maybe an overly optimistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Where I, I, I constantly have hope for people. And so I want to believe they're doing their best because here's what I know, Montana, is that the people who I wanted to be around with and who I still want to be around with always believe the best about me, even when I wasn't, I knew I wasn't consciously doing my best. And and because they believe the best about me, that gave me the energy and strength and grace that I needed to get to the next level, to find healing, to be the person that I knew God had called me to be. So it was almost like they were saying, here's a suit and it might be a few sizes too big, but I believe that one day you can fit this Mm. almost like they're, they're talking in a future tense right now. So in doing that, it's, it's maybe naive sometimes, but I always want to err on the side of yes, this person is doing their best. And even if they're not, how can I help them achieve that? Hmm. Wow. But we can't always help other people achieve their best unless they ask us. Yeah. So one thing that I see, uh, I work in a homeless uh, shelter. And one of the things about our campus, we have 100 families that live on site and that, that uh, were homeless, but they lived there for about a year or two. And we help them to reintegrate back into society, uh, back into livelihood, I should say. So we have all these accountability programs put into place. Mm all kinds of things. They have, they need to find a job. And if they don't have a job, they need to attend all these classes. You need to be saving 80% of your income every month. I mean, it's very intense program, but we want them to succeed and to not have to go back into the hard situation they were in before. Now, many fans, I, I, I read most recently for our program, I think we have a 98% success rate, mm-hmm. but still that means 2% of families are dropping out of the program or deciding just not to be non-compliant. And so certainly there's the case that we need accountability, that the families, if they don't want to ask for help, if they're not complying with the program, what can we do? Right. Mm -hmm. So I've seen many times where we believe, we hope for the best, we're optimistic, we give them so many chances and options, and yet it doesn't pan out. Mm -hmm. So I I hope I'm not saying just have rose colored lens all the time. Because mm-hmm. what's that saying? If you wear a rose colored lens all the time, then every red flag looks pink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. I, I, probably I like that. Yeah, it's something like that. I heard that from somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I'd, certainly there's got to be accountability. But mm-hmm. even in that accountability and that discipline and sort of here's the program and you have to stick to this, there needs to be a gentleness and a grace and a patience around that. And we try always not to say like, oh, we don't try to assume sinister motives. We always try to assume maybe this person didn't comply with this because they didn't have the resource they needed to bring that to completion. Nice. I like that because you give them the benefit of the doubt of um, that they, that if they had other circumstances, maybe they would be able to. Yeah. You know, um, we have a thing called sanctuary model. And so this is copyrighted. So I'm making sure to credit them. But we ask the question rather than asking what's wrong with you, we always ask what happened to you. So what happened mm. right? rather than what's wrong. And so that's trying to assume in good faith, not that this person is somehow intrinsically, inherently, mm. morally wrong, right? but rather what is it that happened that put you in this situation Mm-hmm. And how can we help you get to a better place? 
Mm-hmm. I guess the reason why I doubt that most people do the best they can because I, I feel like I don't do the best I can and I can always do a little bit better. And I'm just like thinking like, I know that I don't show up the best I can all the time and I could definitely try harder so many different places. So, and, and I do try hard. I do show up a lot and I can even do more. So I'm just wondering if people that don't show up, like that don't do the work that it takes to really do the best they can, are they? It's always like something in my mind that I'm wondering people, but I remember Brene Brown talking about it and I actually gave a class on that because um, I think she connected it to courage and forgiveness and and boundaries all at the same time that um, forgiveness is knowing that somebody did the best they can. And when we know that, when we show up in the belief that they did, that's when we can grant the forgiveness that doesn't mean that it gives them the the past that what they did was okay, but for us to believe that we yeah. can let go of it because they did the best they can. Yeah, and I think there's, I think for ourselves, you know, you're talking about, I know I don't always bring my best, or I, I think that there is a level of contentedness that we can have with ourselves. So there's space for that, while at the same time, in the other hand, asking the question, how can I do better? So I think the fact that you have the self-awareness to be able to say, I know I didn't do my best. How can I do better? I think that's a healthy, that's a healthy thing. So not so much that we're beating ourselves up asking that question, how can I do better? But at the same time, even though we came in and, you know, we weren't fully prepared or we didn't do everything that we could have still being able to say, but that turned out okay. Or mm-hmm. even though that didn't turn exactly the way that I wanted, it was still usable and workable. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange balance and push and pull and a tug of war that I think all of us is probably a lifelong thing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was actually discussing this with my husband yesterday and I said, sometimes I go to sleep when I do my gratitude before I go to sleep, a long list of gratitude and I go into depth. It's my journal. And so many times um, I write and I hope and pray that tomorrow I could show up better for my children. And I said, so many times I go to sleep with a heavy heart that I do the best I can for my children. He said, you need to understand that most parents go to sleep, not even thinking, did I do best I can for my children today? And, and the fact that you're already, that you are thinking about it is already much more than the usual also and and the desire and the awareness is is the doing Absolutely. so yeah it's it's definitely a um a work in progress a constant work in progress um i want to talk about um what's going on in the world now and from your perspective and you're in crisis all the time you're working with crisis all the time you're trying to hold space for people that are in real crisis, no home, no food, no job, no parents, heavy abuse. You see it all, right? And and now coronavirus came to the, to the world, I should say, yeah, to the world and shut the world down. And people are having a hard time with dealing with not having freedom. Do you think that you, the people that you are supporting have the stronger ability to deal with this instability because they they live with instability their whole life and this is not affecting them as much? If anything, uh, I, I hate to generalize, but if anything, I would say it's affecting them more. Mm-hmm. So if you are, if you have a wound and you get wounded again, it's a little difficult to say, hey, look at, the, this old wound is making this new one not as bad. Mm-hmm. It, it just hurts. Sometimes it just hurts twice as much. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's a saying that I I don't necessarily, I, I, I get what it's saying, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. I get the heart behind that statement. And at the same time, sometimes whatever doesn't kill you can leave you seriously injured. Mm. Right. Wow. Yeah. So what I'm seeing now is, so I, recently um, I had a fr- I talked about this on my social media I, rec- I had recently had a friend lose somebody and we didn't first at first know was it coronavirus or not. And there's still a lot of questions about that. But the funeral, the, the way that the authorities, like the, the people who came to pick up the deceased, the way everything was treated, mm. there was so much, there was a lot of caution. I mean, the people who came to pick up the deceased, they came in like what almost looked like hazmat suits. It is hazmat suits. Basically. Yeah. 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 Um, and he couldn't enter the room after oh. she had, you know, passed away. There was just a lot of extra rules around it. So there's now this secondary grief. I don't mean lesser grief. I mean, a, a, dip, a second layer of grief mm-hmm. where loss is now, uh, I guess, accompanied by even greater loss because of what this pandemic is doing. And so I'd hate to say that those who have been in pain are are used to it. And I don't think that's what you you mean at all. I I, I think what I see is... Are they, are they, my question was, do they, are they able to deal with it better because they're already, um, they have the tools to deal with so much in life? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some do. And I know it's also different for everyone. So we're all different textures and compositions and we all have different skill sets. People who have found more resilience through their pain, yeah, I I guess it would be easier for them. But I think one thing that I'm noticing is no matter where a person is at, whether their pain has really brought them towards resilience or not, this pandemic experience is very new for most of us. Yes. So so with it comes very uh, novel, strange, disturbing, uh, intrusive, invasive uh, uh, pain. Um, So because it's so new, I think a lot of us are working out and flexing muscles that we don't quite have yet. Yeah. So so even for the most experienced, it's even weird to say it that way, but the most experienced hurting person, gosh, this is such a weird new thing that it's hard for them as well, I think. Uh, you said it so beautifully, and that's what it is. I, 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 For the last few weeks, I've been saying this over and over. I cannot imagine the pain that people are going through, not saying goodbye to loved ones and not seeing them during the last few days or weeks because they were not allowed into the hospital or just not knowing, were they taken care of properly? Could I have saved them? All the questions. Did he want to say something to us? She, he, she say something to us. But all of these questions and this isolation from the loved one before they pass, and you called it secondary grief. And that's such a perfect word. It's a secondary grief. The first is the, the grief of a loss that when everybody loses someone, they grieve and everybody grieves in a different way. But like, we know what grief with that looks like. But what kept on coming to my mind, I kept on saying, it's a Holocaust. It's a Holocaust. It wasn't a Holocaust. People were separated and no one was able to see each other. And, and, and it was just like, boom, you're together one second, the next second, you, you're, you're separated and you don't know if you're living death. And then you're, you find out that they're, they, they passed away and there's no connection. And the, that unknown is such a grief and that pain and yearning to saying goodbye. 
holding their hands, seeing their being able to be with them in their pain is such a grief. It's such a moment of how can this happen? And it happens so fast from being in the hospital. A month ago, people were able to be with each other in the hospital. And now you cannot enter. There are no questions asked. And whether it's for the good or the bad of society, that's irrelevant. The grief is the same grief for the person that lost a loved one. And I, and, and, and as you said, it's a new, it's a new trauma. It's a new thing for society. And we don't even know how to heal from this because it's so new to us. The second, that's what it is. It's secondary grief to the ultimate grief of loss. You said it so beautifully. I had to stop you there. And I'm like, wow, that's beautiful to, to understand it like that. Yeah. I mean, any kind of grief is always going to be intrusive and invasive and hard to deal with. And this new one that I'm seeing now, you know, all of it's new, but this one particularly feels different. Gosh, it's a whole new skill set. It's a whole new muscle being flexed. You know, recently we had the funeral and, you know, there are gatherings of 10 or more are not allowed. Right. And uh, some people had to call in. Family wanted to fly in. They can't. There's no traveling allowed, right? And even to travel, some states are on lockdown and things like that. Um, but you know what else I'm seeing now? Even in the midst of that kind of quote-unquote new grief, there was a lot of gratitude for uh, the reverend who called in to do the funeral. Like, how can we make this work with all the restrictions? There was an outdoor funeral where people were standing six to ten feet apart. Mm -hmm. and, and people did their best to make it work in a hard situation. And what I'm seeing is anytime there's loss, anytime there's hurt, when people come together and unify together in the midst of a hard situation and say, we can't have it the way that we want. We can't even grieve the way that we want, mm. but how can we still find the good or how can we still unify in a way where we can do our best and grieve with a little bit of room, that wiggle room that we have. Mm. And what I see almost is like a, like a, a gratitude with a lot of depth. Mm. And so there was a lot of like, Thank you so much that even though it's this hard, we still manage to find a way to do this. So beautiful. That's so beautiful. We find, I um, spoke to somebody last week because I did an episode on grief and gratitude. Last week, actually, it just released on Thursday. I was wondering, can we be grateful when there's so much grief? Can we tap into gratitude? And I called a friend that lost her husband last year out of the blue. And I asked her, can you practice gratitude while you're grieving? She said, it not only can you, it's on a deeper level because you suddenly find meaning in so many things that you were not aware that were there for you and how much you have to be grateful for when when life can be so challenging. And I was like, wow, that that to me that's courage to be able to see that. Even at the at at the moment of like when you feel like there's nothing left, you find everything that is working around you. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's not what we would have wanted, but I think it has it. It offers its own kind of grace and beauty. So, so I hate to make light of pain. I hate to say that you know, oh, we need that or that had to happen. I hate to say any of those kind of things. Right. But in an unideal situation that we didn't want, there there's still grace to be found. What does hope mean to you? So I really like this quote. I believe it's by a poet named. Gabriel Marquez, I, I could be saying that completely wrong, um, but he says, hope is a memory of the future. So hope is looking towards having an expectation of 
somehow this will work out. I know that that's why people say sometimes hope is a dangerous thing because to put a positive expectation on that and then it doesn't work out can be dangerous. Um, but I think even in the way that we view the future, hope is looking towards something that even if the outcome isn't positive, uh, that there's a positive view around it. Uh, so for me, my faith tells me that the story that we're living in, uh, whatever pain that we go through, that's not the final period on that sentence. Throughout our suffering, throughout our history, through this story, that there's an author that is writing an ending that is going to conclude in a beautiful and powerful way that we can't see right now. Mm. So there's a hope in that, that in every hard death and every hard loss that there there's going to be some kind of resurrection. So that is hope. And I think we can get glimpses of hope today. We can bring that kind of future hope into now. So I hope that I'm not saying that hope is just looking into the future, mm -hmm. uh, but rather how can we bring some of that resurrection, mm -hmm. uh, some of that um, sort of completion at the end to where we are today. Nice. Tell me a little bit about your book that's being released in a few weeks. Yeah, so it's exactly uh, two weeks from today uh, on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, which I believe earlier you said that's Mental Health Awareness Month. It yes. is also um, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month as well. Mm. So uh, happy that it kind of uh, comes out on that month. <laughs> Um, the book is called The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. And the book is half self-help, half memoir. It's a, it's a lot about my hospital chaplaincy journey, but each chapter is a different voice that we uh, wrestle with. So that's self-doubt, people-pleasing, trauma, grief, family dynamics. Those are some of the chapters. And then I wrap that up with finding our voice in a world that often silences us. For me, that has been my own experience very much. And then also giving a voice to those who have been historically voiceless. Oof, that's so funny. I was just, ah, you know Heather. I was speaking to Heather yesterday. Love Heather. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening, Heather. You're awesome. Um, and I was saying to her, sometimes I, f I fear living out loud. Why do you think we fear living out loud? I think a lot of it, this I can speak for me is... It will be received with ridicule and it will be, it'll be received poorly. So Matarai, I had this recurring nightmare. I still have it sometimes. When I finally got the book deal, I had this recurring nightmare that my publisher and everybody would show up at my house, my whole publishing team. And then they would say, you think that we were going to publish your book? This whole thing was just a prank. Oh my God. Like, and I would be horrified in my in my it was a nightmare really wow and uh, i would wake up just in a, in i know this is so cliche but really in a cold sweat um that somehow that this was all just a big joke and that they weren't really going to publish my book and they were just doing that to make fun of me or or, or, or to embarrass me so i think there's sometimes uh, a moment when you ever feel like you talk too much and then you tell somebody oh my gosh i'm sorry <laughs> i'm talking so much i don't there's something about us where we at some point become very self-conscious and feel weird about putting our voice out into the into the world. Mm. So 
Yeah, I think it's about the the reception and about how it'll be received. Yeah, for me, I anytime I create something or I make something, I try to have the perspective of I'm doing this between me and God and I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this for me. And maybe that sounds self-absorbed, but if I take that point of view, then what I am writing is to heal me. And if I can write and create things that are not contingent upon response, not only... Uh, is not only is like the worry and the fear and the insecurity kind of gone, but very often my voice or my writing comes out stronger. Mm. So I try to come from a place of um, this is for me. And if no one else sees this, that's okay. And mm. I think a, a lot of the fear around it is how it'll be received. So isn't it? I think uh, you're right. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And, but my, my fear is that's exactly what I was telling Heather. She's like, who did anybody shut you up once that you're so afraid to live out loud? I said, I'm afraid that I, my fear is that I'm going to hurt somebody mm. when I live out loud. So will somebody say, well, I, I had this thing that and I have this thing going um, that January 1st, I started, uh, I called it a smile a day project. And every day I start my day with a smile and with a smile and capture the big smile of the day moment. And for me, smiling doesn't come very naturally. My husband smiles all the time. For <laughs> me, it doesn't come so naturally. So I said, I want to increase it. And I wanted, to, that was my goal of the year to smile more every day. And I knew that when I will smile more every day, I will change something in my inside and my everything around me will change. It would be a small change. It would impact myself, my my kids, my my surrounding, my energy. I was loving it. It was just like I really woke up with a smile. Even when it was a hard to smile, I forced that smile. I looked in the mirror, I smiled and and it just was some some were on a higher vibration and some were on lower vibrations and it just shifted something inside me. And then I, when when coronavirus came, I was still doing it. And then I realized like how can I live out loud with my 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 personal project of a smile a day when so many people are struggling should i not live out loud now and i some days i do capture my smile a day if i think it's appropriate and sometimes i don't but i fear what are people get, are people going to get hurt if they lost a loved one and i'm i'm flashing my smile that's that's my struggle now like should i live out loud should i not hmm. yeah you know i think i think it is hard to say will this thing that i'm doing hurt someone because i'd like to believe that most of us do not set out with the intention of hurting it we don't wake up thinking how many people can i hurt today certainly right. there may be people like that <laughs> but yeah i think there there can be also unintended things like you're talking about am i empathizing enough with the current situation? Am I reading the room? You know, mm -hmm. am I really seeing the temperature of what's happening? But you know, sometimes when we create something or when we live out loud or when we speak our voice, and if it's a challenge, if it's something that is intentionally difficult and we're challenging ourselves, it may cause a kind of hurt that maybe it's offensive and we need to explore that, but it also could be because it's stretching new things in our minds and in our bodies that we're not used to. Mm -hmm. So I would, yeah, I, I agree with you in that I'm also afraid of the things I write or say, is it going to hurt someone? I'm, I mean, mm -hmm. like I'm terrified of cancel culture. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm really terrified of, Oh my gosh, if I say this thing, it's going to offend. And right. you know, and, and all of that, right. Which I think that does have value and merit to it that we, we should be careful of the things we say and write. Mm -hmm. 
And at the same time, I think for your Smile a Day project, for example, maybe, maybe there will be people that say, how can you smile through something like this? But then there will be other people who will be stretched and challenged to say, yeah, maybe even in the midst of this hard season, where can I find the things to be grateful for and to be joyful about? And you're not at all saying, I don't think, I don't think you're at, because I've seen your Smile of the Day project <laughs> on social media. I don't think you're at all downplaying people's hurt. Right. I think you're saying, even though it hurts, even in the midst of hurt, where can we find something of worth? Right. Right. And that that's really, it was my, the goal started that even when I have challenges during my day before COVID, before the, the regular challenges of the day, just sometimes being just down. Can I find a smile? That was my goal. And it started from everyday challenges to COVID challenges. And and it's funny because a lot of people are saying to me, I miss your smile a day. Um, you inspire me, but I have this fear of living out loud. Will I hurt somebody? And is it worth inspiring somebody if I might hurt somebody else? I don't know. It's a fine balance. It's a very fine balance. Yeah, it absolutely is. But you know, I I like your smile a day challenge. And I think there there may be a day where you say, you know what, I'm doing the smile a day challenge and I can't smile today. <laughs> right. And I did do that. I did oh, do did. that. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, did right. I did the frown because I said today the smile is is a cry or today a smile is a frown or whatever or I can't smile today. Or in the morning I smiled, but now I'm not smiling. I, I am going through it and I think in, in a day I can go through hundreds of different emotions now that I'm aware of. We always go through it, but now we're, I'm aware of the changes and it's like a heartbeat up, low, up, low, up, low. <laughs> and, um, and just to be aware of it. But I was just curious to think about, uh, to hear your outlook on living out loud and our fears behind it. Well, Matana, you know, what's so cool is that I think because you have uh, this maybe worry that people will be hurt that really shows that you you care and you have compassion. Um, I, I can I can probably in my head think of people that wouldn't think about that, and that doesn't make them mean or or bad. But the fact that you pause and say, "Will this hurt someone?" I mean, that shows a lot of empathy and compassion. I think so. I think that in itself, I mean, is a plus. To you. You. I'm kind of blowing you up right now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> really, Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I want I want you to please give my audience one or two or three tips that you that you think that can help them through anxiety and sad moments New, people that are that usually don't deal with anxiety i'm not talking to the people that always have anxiety but this is new to them usually go through life no anxiety no depression let's say people lost their job or or are um very having a really hard time staying at home or they're missing the cultural experiences that they're used to or singles that don't have someone to support them at home. What can you give them as tips to get through this challenging time that we're in now? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've been, we've been doing in our team meetings at work is we have been asking each other uh, the question at the start of every meeting uh, in my team, uh, how are you going to take care of yourself today? And what that does is that intentionally sets a physical and tangible time, a block of time, even if it's just 15 or 30 minutes, where I will do something that I enjoy. I'm going to schedule some time, even if that means taking a nap. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's reading a book, listening to a podcast, watching a show, exercising, walking my dog, stepping outside for a bit, taking a walk, how can I take care of myself today? 
uh, because it is easy for us to lose hours glued to the screen watching the news. Uh, it is easy for us to turn social distancing into isolation. Mm-hmm. But we need to find ways um, to carve out that time. And, and the fact that we ask each other that question and we we answer out loud, here's how I'm going to take care of myself, that already begins to set into, into motion our hearts, bodies, and minds. This is the plan that I have for the day. So we need, uh, I mean, for me, that has been a game changer. I, I, you know, we ask that in team meetings, but now I've been asking myself that every single day. Mm-hmm. What is the thing that I do that I find joy and strength in? So yeah. important. Yeah. And then um, the other thing too is, um, so in a recent chaplain training that we had, the, there was a, I believe a psychiatrist who said, we should never have called it social distancing. Uh, we should have called it physical distancing. Oh, I love that. Right. So, so I'm, I'm stealing that from somebody else. But he said that name, social distancing, that sounds like you're disconnecting from everything. We should never have called it that. It ought to have been called physical distancing. We still need social interaction. So in what ways can we still connect and reach out to people in all the creative ways that we can, in all the ways that we can? And I've been trying to make it a habit every day. I think I have probably been more in touch with people uh, than before. People are saying that a lot. Yeah. 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 And I think there's something powerful about typed text. Like, mm-hmm. like my preferred way of meeting people is one-on-one, but sending an email or messenger or text messages, there's something powerful about having this recorded typed text that you can read almost like a letter from someone Yes. and getting encouraged that way. So in what ways can we stay in communication and connection, uh, asking ourselves that? Also with anxiety, there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson law. I just kind of learned about this. Uh, but it's a principle, a psychological principle that's evidence-based that states a certain, um, there's a point, a tipping point where anxiety becomes so overwhelming that it decreases cognitive and uh, functional performance, right? But there is a point where a little bit of anxiety uh, can actually help you and increase performance. Mm-hmm. And so each, each of us kind of need to know our own biological and spiritual rhythms about that. Like, oh, I'm getting to the tipping point that being able to back away self-care but every one of us have a rhythm in which a certain amount of anxiety will throw us into under function and panic right or, or panic so i think it's important to know when is this anxiety too much and when do i need to kind of take a step back but also how can i use the anxiety that's happening right now rather than put me into a panic or a spiral of like binging on the news or something like that how can it push me towards better performance whether that's finding out information that I need to know in order to calm myself, whether that's actually physically getting on my phone and calling someone or reaching out to someone. So there are certain ways in which certainly uh, productive anxiety can actually be helpful rather than harmful. Uh, and I'm still learning that in myself and in my own bodily rhythms. And then last thing that I would say, Matana, is for those who are who have lost, whether that's their jobs, their freedoms, a person, we sometimes equate our losses with our value and say, I am my loss or I am my sickness. I am my hurt. I'll see people in the hospital who, when they get sick, when their bodies betray themselves, that they will start to feel like they have less value, no dignity, no purpose, that they're not loved. But I just want to tell your listeners that regardless of what they've lost, if they've tested positive for COVID-19, as much as it hurts as much as this season is isolating and restricting us, that every single person 
is still loved. They still have value, regardless of being sick or whatever they lost. If you don't have a job, don't have work, don't have money, you still have value. Mm-hmm. Our health and wealth are not a currency for our dignity and for being loved. So whatever you've lost, whatever in whatever situation you're in, you're in, you need to know you're loved and you need to know that you still have dignity and value regardless of what you've lost and what you're going through. And I know that doesn't fix the situation, but I think that can make a hard situation bearable that you're still loved. So beautiful. I was trying to um, explain to someone I know that they that the first step of healing is self-love. And we need to love ourselves so much now more than ever and write ourselves love notes and write ourselves lists of what we like about ourselves and why we're valued because we're losing a little bit of sense of ourselves now. And because we're so, we're so isolated and what we are so used to doing, we're not doing anymore. So are we still loved? Are we lovable? Are we, are we okay? And you said it so beautifully that, that we are not what we are always doing, that we are just love because we, we're just because we're here. Just because we exist. Yes. Right. Just because we exist. You said it so beautifully. Thank you. So June, direct my listeners to find you your pre-order. I'm going to try to release this ASAP that we can get the pre-order. Where can they get it? Is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon, uh, The Voices We Carry. And my author name is J.S. Park. And you can find it on all my social media platforms as well. Okay. So what are you on? What are you you on Instagram, Facebook? I have uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter and Tumblr in okay. my work. Yep. <laughs> okay, fine. So go, go check him out. So phenomenal. I'm going to pre-order the book because I'm, I'm fascinated with your life. Wow. 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 <laughs> I would love to interview your father, but I'm, I must say, I must, I'm a little bit scared. Like he sounds like a really like, like, um, what should I say? Like less compassionate than you are. Well, he is, he is scary, <laughs> but he's also very, very charming and a, and a lovely person. <laughs> What does he do nowadays? I'm sorry, say again? What does he do nowadays? He actually still teaches uh, martial arts to this day, and he is uh, he just turned 78. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is he in Florida? He is in Florida. Yes, he is. Wow. So your brother went into martial's, martial, martial art because of your father? Yeah, so it's funny as I was supposed to take on that business, but then went a completely different direction. And mm-hmm. my younger brother, who we thought would never pick up that, uh, that tradition, he ended up taking it on and he loves it. Oh, so maybe we will interview or maybe I'll meet him one-on-one first to see if I can do it. <laughs> I can handle it next time I, when, when COVID is over and we can uh, actually meet people. Um, that would be interesting. Very, very fascinating. I think, I think it's so important. You know, I'm just going to end by this. Today is, um, is actually the Memorial Day for the Holocaust, and um, in Israel, it's it's a it, the truth is it's all over the world a day that we mem- remember the Holocaust. And growing up, there was always like, were, are they children of Holocaust survivors? Like suddenly that explained things because they were tougher or or more like unconditional love. Like there was it was like an underlining question are they children of Holocaust survivor? Because that suddenly explained something and there was no judgment then. If they are, okay, no judgment. So we can't understand, we can't judge. We, we're not even going to go there because it's not our territory. We're not allowed to step into that understanding and the mindset if they're Holocaust survivors because 
We have no clue what they've been through. In a way, I feel like your father is the same. Like we have no idea what he needed to go through to be living now, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he endured so much, but you know, he, I'm very fortunate in that he came out the other side with, you know, I know that there's, there's a lot of PTSD that came, that comes out of every war, really, but mm-hmm. particularly the Vietnam War, there was a lot of that. I'm very fortunate that my dad did have some help, I think. And he, he really built for himself uh, a lot of resilience and strength. So when he talks about the Vietnam War, it's very often he has a lot of funny stories. Yeah. So maybe some of that is he's hiding some deeper pain, maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's his way he copes with it. Yeah, it could be. It it could absolutely be. Uh, But gosh, he's built it for himself. Such such um, an awesome life here uh, in the States, in the U.S. So I'm so proud of him. Absolutely. I think you should keep him on that pedestal. It's 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 worthy. <laughs> He's worthy of the pedestal. Um, wow, so so great to have you. Is there anything you want to end off with before we say goodbye to our listeners and tell them to go buy your book, go buy a pre-order, <laughs> pre-order the book, pre-order the book before Mental Health Awareness Month comes. Uh, well, Matana, I want to say for you, uh, I have listened to your podcast quite a lot now. You are a lovely, gracious, compassionate person. You listen well. And I feel like what you're doing in the mental health space and in the podcast world is absolutely beautiful and amazing. And I I encourage you and hope and my prayer for you is that you continue to live out loud and to be you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Wow. What a bonus for me to hear that, to continue living out loud. It's funny because I'm sure my parents are going to listen and like, really? She's not living out loud. She's very loud. (laughs) I could be even louder. I love my parents to no end. They are just like, everything I am is because of them. They live in Israel. So we see each other through Zoom every day now. Um, And they're just so proud of their children and what we became. And and they give us the courage to live out loud. At the same time, like, I don't think I can think of anyone that's more sensitive to humans than my parents. They see and feel humans. So it was that fine balance of living out loud and feeling others. So interesting was an, a nice ending to this thank you so much june for joining us and let's hope and pray that this horrible pandemic ends fast no more deaths and and just that we can reconnect with with people with society with our past lives that we are used to going outside just going into a supermarket without a mask mm. or just thinking about going outside should not be a thought anymore that we could just hop in our car and go somewhere and and regain our social non-distancing back and our physical non-distancing back. So yes, thank you very, very much. And best of luck with your book. And and you're doing phenomenal work in the world. And people are just so lucky to have you um, in their lives to hold space for their pain and to help them guide them to wherever they want to go in a better direction. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you everybody for listening. And I really hope you grab June's book. So it's J.S. Park. J.S. Park. Go look at it at social media, find and follow him and read his book. And um, let's hope for better good news soon. Bye till next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.